0: That was a <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 15th episode of
1: the InfoSecSync Podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSecSync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech,
0: they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at
1: VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software-integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. And now... For the stories of the week ending February 27th, 2015. What's up, guys? What's up, guys? We're in the house. Vic, you we gonna... are, we are. Yeah, you already number know. 15. Number 15. Big 15. We're having a party over here, guys. We've Woo! made it 15 episodes. Yeah. We're high
2: off of hot dogs and pizza. And
1: pizza
0: and mountain dew. So uh, it's good to be back on the mic. Hello, InfoSexSync fam. Uh, it's always a good time, um, talking with you guys and, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's get any, let's get right into it, right? So, um, the first story of the week, tax firm H&R Block doesn't verify client's email and leaks the personal info. It's a problem, right? Tax season is now, um, so with this particular, uh, Attack, you know, or or this was unauthorized disclosure of information. Um, With the tax season in full swing, it's time for the yearly reminder that the security practices of many tax preparation services are lacking. Case in point, H&R Block's reported failure to confirm confirm the email addresses of at least some of its online account holders. The lapse was reported to Ars Technica. By reader Aaron Johnson, who said h and Block in recent days has emailed him the name, address, and security questions of a complete stranger. Johnson said he is confident that he has everything he needs to access the person's account, steal his most valuable personal data, and hijack any owed tax returns. We created an account at h and Block. This is Ars Technica um, speaking, of course. Again, just to clarify, we report the news. So these are from other security blogs and stuff like that. So when I'm saying we did something, it means the blog. And you can always check out our show notes and see exactly the source where we got this from. Again, this is not self-generated. This is not, we speak on things and joke around and stuff like that. But most of it's coming from um, other blogs. So anyways, Ars Technica created an account at h Block, and they were not asked to authenticate the email address that they used. The stranger happens to share Johnson's first and last name. And for reasons that aren't entirely clear, the alter ego occasionally uses Johnson's email address when creating accounts. At no point, Johnson said, did he receive an email from h and Block requiring him to confirm his email address that was connected to the other person's account. Um, and it's, I quote, I imagine that this, is, this other Aaron Johnson, same name as me, has an email address close enough to mine he occasionally mistypes and uses mine instead. Johnson told us, but... Ordinarily, this is just annoying because I received email for accounts that he doesn't control, but the stuff he's getting from HR Block is just straight up disturbing. Email verification is a standard practice, or at least it should be. When done correctly, account setups aren't complete until new users demonstrate that they have control of the email address they associated with their username. But this step requires more work on the part of the website operators and often creates resentment among some users. It wouldn't be surprising to learn that H&R Block isn't the only financial service cutting that corner. So what do you guys think about this? I mean, I use a CPA, so for me it doesn't really doesn't really affect me too much. Um but do either of you guys use an online service for tax preparation?
1: <laughs> no, but I do use H&R Block and take it to them. But it's not online, it's an actual CPA doing the work for oh, me. Okay.
2: Well, I've seen in past, like, some of the law offices, you know, you do take your returns to them and you think that they're doing your return, but they're just using, um, what is it, the uh, tax return um, software like TurboTax or some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're all at risk, especially if they're doing them online. Right. I mean, uh, I guess the real, the only safe way would be, well, it's really not safe still because you're putting it in the mail. <laughs> Um it's better than
0: it's better than transmitting it electronically. Yeah. Because then if you're transmitting it electronically, it's you know that you have the the potential of uh somebody else accessing that and being able to pull it down.
2: Well, well I w- you know another concern is I was reading that uh H&R blocks privacy policy states that information contained in your tax return will be treated with extreme care and confidence they also go to on to say that we'll never disclose any of your tax return information without your consent Um, but uh, the policy doesn't address information that is accidentally disclosed without permission which now you know this information is is been leaked so you know how do you um, make sure that you're protected so you know and I was also reading that um, Some of the consumer advocates were pushing for umbrella data uh, protection laws, Mm -hmm. and uh, to safeguard some of these these types of breaches, you know, saying that they have to have certain kind of controls in place uh, for data protection and and privacy breaches. Um, But uh, you know, instead, the U.S. government has favored industry-developed guidelines, so the the government's kind of stayed out of that arena. But now you're talking about Tax returns are, that's federal and state, uh, state and local yeah. government type uh, money is going to that, so that's something that they need to be concerned about, too.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Good good point. Good point, Vic. Um, as far as the email verification is concerned, it, it's really interesting how you, um, how they, they don't really directly address that, but... Um, you know, the president just signed into law that new cybersecurity bill, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But um, still, you're right, it transcends state, federal, I mean, whose swim lane does this fall in? Um, it is, uh, it does have private information tied to it. It also has very personal information for salary. I mean, you know, I wouldn't want that leaking out. That's something that, you know, I like to keep keep private to myself and you know, make sure that if if I want somebody to know how much I make, for example, or the deductions that I'm claiming or any of that, I want them to know that and, and share that information at will, not something that, you know, somebody can hack into my H&R Block account and, and, and look at that information.
2: You know, uh, this is kind of on a side note and it's just a kind of a brainstorm, but in this day and age, you know, tax returns have all of these tax laws and you know, it seems like a intricate uh, detail of, of information um, where you're putting together these returns. You'd almost think like some of this stuff could be streamlined with like how your pay te- paychecks are already, um, you know, derived, right. where they, uh, they're automatic. You already put in like what your house mortgage payments are, and it automatically takes out what it needs to take out. And, and then that way we could all live a little uh, easier and we don't have to be so stressed out about tax. Tax time, right? Well, right. for some of us, tax time isn't the most fun time <laughs> right. right.
0: You know it it all depends. Um, as I say, different strokes for different folks, but I mean, at the same time, I mean, privacy, I think, should be shared amongst. Um, you can almost look at your life as as you know, you interact with information systems in different ways um at different points in your life. So like, you know during the day I may use my cell phone right then I'm going to use email then I'm going to be using H&R blocks for you know uh, text preparation service maybe I'll use Domino's Pizza online ordering with uh, payment information submitted I may order on Amazon or eBay right we're relying on information systems now however security isn't baked in and you don't have educated consumers using those systems now look at how many things you touch and you know how much information you actually put out there um you know it's not if you're not kept in tune with what the the data protection laws are and what's actually being done with that data as it goes across the wire then you're not an educated consumer previously what was it cash right cash was king so if i went somewhere and i wanted something i could bring cash with me and say here you go You know, I want to pay for this now. That was real easy. That was real easy. Now things have completely changed. Um, The digital age uh, has really changed a lot of things. And uh, you bring up some good points, Vic. You bring up some good points about it.
2: You know, it's funny how technology changes the game. I just remember even when the... Do you remember when the, like, color laser printers started becoming popular? They were becoming mainstream. I know that... They were having problems with counterfeiters at that time being able to mass produce uh, dollar bills because they didn't the dollar bills didn't have the proper mark markings as they do today. Right. You know, and they were easily duplicated. Do you remember that?
0: I so I remember that. Um, I saw a story on it. So they had uh, security controls and countermeasures built into dollar bills and different bills. Um, after that, so as you go to a twenty-dollar bill, a ten-dollar bill, five-dollar bill, ten-dollar bill, twenty-dollar bill, fifty-dollar bill, and a hundred, the security controls change based upon that currency, right? So one-dollar bills are going to have as much security baked in as a hundred-dollar bill, as a Benji, right? But at the same time, you know you're you're going to see some level of, of security engineering go into that. But when uh, the laser jet printers came out, it was a big problem. I mean, they looked really sharp. It was really hard to, to, you know, determine the difference. Then they started having to come out with the reactive inks, with the markers that the the um, that the actual uh, tellers and individuals accepting your money would have to verify the legitimacy, you know, of, of the bills. But that that's a very good point. That's where The Department of Treasury and, um, you know, the the Fed basically said, hey, what do we have to do to stop people from counterfeiting this because it's creating inflation? Right. Right? That was a federal problem. And they came up with a federal solution. Now H&R Block leaking out tax information, that's a federal problem. Because now as an attacker, if I can get in and manipulate and see your return, can I change the payment information? Oh can I, can I change work can
1: I change it to my information right and get more money right I mean can, um, can they do something like that
2: Didn't we have didn't we talk about that on one of the podcasts yeah. with wasn't there some um where there were some people getting tax returns um, I think we did. oh
0: yes 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 yes, yes.
2: <laughs> and then and then some of these guys they could they would have to go and stand St- in line for hours state and, tax returns right, yeah. So can you imagine? I, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I don't have hours to stand in line to get something done, done like that. Especially when you send it in, you think it's supposed to be legit. wait. Were they
1: standing in line to legitimately get it, or no, to nefariously no, get it?
2: No, to legitimately reverse, like oh, reverse. It. Yeah, 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 because so, it went in someone else's account. Right. Oh, okay. They so, were, so they had to prove who they were, and went into like all that a Kenyan stuff. account. Yeah, <laughs>
0: instead of a a legitimate account. So could you imagine like? realizing that somebody else got your money and now you have to stand in line to basically say, hey, that's my money. Here are my two forms of identification. Not even
2: two forms. You got It's probably like applying for a mortgage. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's probably even worse because now they have to repay those funds. They have to right. revoke or repay those yeah. funds.
1: They have to get it from somewhere, right?
0: All right, they have to get it from somewhere. And right? you know
2: what? Who pays for that? We do. They just write it off. So, <laughs> so now, So now we're paying, you know, the... Uncle Sam and um the hacker <laughs> Uncle Sam and
0: uh yeah, Uncle hacker. <laughs> or, uh, Uncle H- so uh anyways, <laughs> do we want to get into um getting paid from LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, people I heard people were getting big bucks for this. Yeah. Like a dollar. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like a dollar? Yeah, you're yeah.
0: going gonna to get a kick out of this story. So.
1: To settle a class action lawsuit, LinkedIn has agreed to pay about $1 each to the roughly 800,000 people who were premium users between March 2006 and June 2012. A LinkedIn premium user by the name of Katie Zirpa <laughs> sued the social network shortly after roughly 6.5 million hashed user passwords and $1.5 million from a dating website, were published in June 2012. She alleged that the company was in violation of a number of California state laws, in breach of implied contracts, and was negligent, among other things. A federal court in San Jose, California, approved the preliminary settlement, which, among other things, sets up a fund worth $1.25 million. Lawyers will take up to one-third of that amount, and after some administrative fees, the rest will be distributed to the individual plaintiffs. In the Class Action Settlement Agreement which was published in August 2014, LinkedIn continues to deny that it committed or threatened or attempted to commit any wrongful act or violation of law or duty alleged in the action. However. Also, as part of the settlement, the Silicon Valley firm has also agreed to employ both salting and hashing, or an equivalent or greater form of protection in LinkedIn's judgment, to protect LinkedIn users' passwords for a period of five years after the final settlement date. In a Monday statement provided to the New York Times, LinkedIn wrote, quote, Following the dismissal of every other claim associated with this lawsuit, LinkedIn has agreed to this settlement to avoid a distraction and expense of ongoing litigation. End quote. I'm going to get paid.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Vic? They're
1: going to give you your dollar back? I wasn't a premium Were you a premium member. user?
2: No, I don't even have a picture on there yet. <laughs> Do you Not have yet. one? Not yet. I haven't done my glamour shots yet.
0: No, but it's it's coming up. So uh, it's like that State Farm commercial where they have the guy. He's like, "Do you want a dollar?" Oh, he <laughs> keeps pulling it away. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were a uh, if you were a LinkedIn user, you can get that dollar.
2: <laughs>
0: we're gonna give you your dollar back, America.
1: America.
2: I was hoping you were gonna say it was like the nationwide. Uh, Commercial, but is,
0: is that what the is that was that the Nationwide one?
2: No, that's the one with Peyton Manning where he's. he's oh on. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no.
0: That was hilarious. <laughs> so, I mean, that's another thing. So they they hashed, but they didn't salt. So hashing is reversible. I I well not reversible. I can hash other values and get that same result, right? With a rainbow table. However, if I salt, that's a lot different. So now I'm throwing a salt in there. Um, it's making it a lot harder for me to um, duplicate. Duplicate. So, either way, I think it's a good step forward, but it could be a lot better. Um, but just think, they had to pay eight hundred thousand dollars for that. So, you know that that's not that's not a good look. However, well, well don't you don't you think there should
1: be some sort of, um, I guess, punishment, <laughs> if you will?
0: Yeah, I think that there should be. Um, there should be some type of litigation that's out there, but that was a class action lawsuit. I mean, that's what happened. That's what came out of it. The judge, you know, could have made some other decision. Um, However, I think in our legal system that we have now, the judges that we have in place aren't necessarily um, very savvy with cyber, and that's nothing against them. Cyber is very new. Cyber laws that are coming out are very new. But at the same time, um, the legislature that is getting written into and signed into law is so new that they have to rely on lawyers to interpret it and, and you know kind of give it in terms that they understand. So I think in this particular case, it was detrimental. There should be things that happen besides the fine and paying back the users. But I don't think it's going to happen because it's just not there. There's There's a gap.
2: We need like a tech savvy Judge Judy out there.
1: Oh, that would be awesome, wouldn't it?
2: <laughs> Judge, Binary. <laughs> Judge
0: Binary. I speak in ones and zeros. <laughs> 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 yeah, that that would be pretty cool. I mean, uh, but it's the same thing with computer forensics. I mean, you have a computer forensics examiner that sits on the on the stand, and they interpret what they got from a computer forensics examination right, for the defendant or plaintiff, and they say, this is what I found, and let's put it in layman's terms, right? So, so everybody here understands it. Not only the judge, but the peers of the jury, you know, that the picked peers that are within the jury also understand, because not everybody there is going to be tech savvy either, right? So, I mean, I would like to see judges uh, having the ability to interpret um, cyber cases and say, from a legal standpoint, this is where the line was crossed. And this is how I'm going to equate it to um, actual results um, and and retribution um, happening after the fact. But I don't know if we're going to see that anytime soon. So let's get into something more exciting. Do you guys know what it could be?
1: What's that, Matt?
0: I went out on a boat. I went deep sea fishing. And guess what I caught me?
1: What? A super fish. Oh, snap. Add echo. Do tell us more. Super
0: fish, 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 fish. All right, so Lenovo PCs. If you have one, throw it away because they ship with a man-in-the-middle adware that breaks HTTPS out of the box. You don't even have to install it. It's not even something you have to do yourself. It's a feature that comes out of the box.
1: Wow, that's pretty cool. Right. So
0: <laughs> Lenovo is selling computers that came pre-installed with an adware that hijacks encrypted web sessions and may make users vulnerable to an HTTPS man-in-the-middle attack that are trivial for attackers to carry out, um, and uh, Ars Technica kind of highlighted it. So the critical threat is present on Lenovo PCs that have adware from a company called Superfish installed. As unsavory as many people find the software that injects ads into web pages, there is something much more nefarious about the Superfish package. It installs a self-signed root HPS certificate that can intercept encrypted traffic for every website that a user visits. When a user visits an HPS-enabled uh, site, the site certificate is signed and controlled by Superfish, that falsely represents it's, itself as the official website certificate. Even worse, the private encryption keys accompanying the Superfish-signed transport layer security certificate (TLS certificate) appears to be the same for every Lenovo machine. <laughs> Attackers may be able to use the key to certify imposter HTTPS websites that masquerade as Bank of America, Google, or any other secure destination on the Internet. Under such a scenario, PCs that have the Superfish root certificate installed will fail to flag sites as forgeries, a failure that completely undermines the reason why HTTPS is enabled and protections are out there in the first place. So as an update, uh, Rob Graham, the CEO of security firm Arata Security, has cracked the cryptographic key encrypting the superficial certificate. That means that anyone now can use the private key to launch Man HPS attacks and it won't be detected that machines that have the certificate installed. It took Graham just three hours to figure out that the password was Commodia minus you know they have it quoted here in this in this uh, report. but he told Ars Technica that the certificate works get, uh, works against Google even when an end user is using Chrome. That confirms earlier statements that certificate pinning in the browser is not a defense against this attack. So we're going to go into a little bit more detail about that. Graham has detailed an explanation about how he did it. We'll post it up on the website so you can check it out. So um, the adware and its effect on web encryption has been discussed uh, since at least September in uh, Lenovo custom forum threads such as ones we'll post. And in a latter post dated in January 21st, a user showed a root certificate called uh, or titled Superfish was installed. So, um, yeah, very interesting. But he then went on to show how the certificate tampered with the HTTPS connection um, to a banking website and the behavior that allowed Superfish to collect data, all the data, unencrypted. So surprisingly, the behavior largely escaped the notice of security and privacy advocates until now. On Wednesday evening, following several uh, lengthy Twitter discussions about the overlooked behavior, security researcher uh, Chris Palmer bought a Lenovo Yoga 2 Pro for 600 at a San Francisco Bay Area Best Buy store. He quickly confirmed that the model was pre-installed with the Superfish software and a self-signed key. When um, Palmer visited HPS www.bankofamerica.com, he found that certificate presented his browser wasn't signed by a certificate authority. Uh, various sign as one would expect, but rather by Superfish. He saw the same Superfish sign certificate misre- misrepresenting itself when he visited other HBS protected websites. In fact, there isn't a single TLS protected website that wasn't affected. So Palmer was later able to confirm that the private key for Superfish um, certificate installed on his Yoga 2 contained the same private key as a Superfish certificate installed on a different Lenovo PC. That means that there is a good chance that attackers could use certificates to create a fake HPS websites that wouldn't be detected by vulnerable Lenovo machines. At the time of this reporting, um, when it was being re- uh, prepared by Ars Technica, there were no reports of anyone testing and confirming the hypothesis, but several researchers agreed the scenario seemed very or highly likely. So, um, no, certificate pinning won't save you. So the Superfish software hijacks encrypted web sessions no matter which browser someone uses. Worse yet, certificate pinning in Google Chrome will do nothing to alert the users that something is amiss. As Google points out in a post explaining certificate pinning, the mechanism isn't set up to validate certificates chained to a private anchor, such as a root certificate installed on the operating system of the connecting device. A key result of this policy is that the private trust anchors can be used to proxy, or man-in-the-middle, connections, even to pin sites, the Google page warned. Data loss prevention appliances, firewalls, content filters, and malware can use this feature to defeat the protections of key pinning. So, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. There's further reading, um, about it, but do you want to cover the, the second, um, Do you want to cover the second portion of it? Sure. Take it away.
1: It's not known exactly which Lenovo computers come with Superfish pre-installed. A Lenovo representative said in a forum that Superfish has been uninstalled and cited some issues, browser pop-up behavior, for example, as the reason. Wednesday on Twitter, a Lenovo representative reiterated that the adware was removed on new machines. But as Palmer's experience demonstrated... It's still possible to buy Lenovo PCs that have it pre-installed and it remains unclear if there's an update mechanism in place to remove it from machines that already have it installed. It's also unknown if PCs from other manufacturers come with Superfish pre-installed. Readers should be aware that even after uninstalling the Superfish adware from their machines, the Superfish root certificate will remain. Update. Lenovo has released a statement saying Superfish was installed on consumer laptops shipped between October and December 2014. The manufacturer said it stopped preloading Superfish in January 2015 and has no plans to resume the practice. Amazingly, the company said it did not find any evidence to substantiate security concerns, but added that it's responding to them anyway. People who are concerned their their PC may contain this critical vulnerability... Can check at https: colon backslash backslash filippo dot io slash badfish. The website was designed by one of the same researchers who published a site to scan websites for the catastrophic Heartbleed weakness in OpenSSL. The companies claim that it didn't add Superfish until October, is at odds with. A post from June in which Lenovo users complained that the very same program was causing problems connecting to the internet. Superfish presumably installs a root certificate so it can inject ads into encrypted web pages. By many people's standards, that's bad. But adware, adware that breaks HTTPS connections and may make users vulnerable to man in the middle attacks that are trivial to carry out is orders of magnitude worse. Stay tuned. We'll all be hearing much more about the Superfish debacle in the days and weeks ahead. What say you, Vikram? Well, I'll be buying Adele. (laughs) Wait, isn't she a singer?
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, I know we went back and forth with this uh, Mac and and Adele. Having problems getting on this website, trying to do my thing. Oh, Are you serious? <laughs>
0: you're using Safari, you use Chrome.
2: Yeah, it's it's a little deeper than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are your thoughts? Is Lenovo is a that's kind of a lower end laptop? Yes. Yeah, so, it? No, no,
1: it, it didn't used to be.
2: Um, those were
1: were those ThinkPads. They were ThinkPads. They were the big, thick ones. Yeah,
0: and now they're they're a yeah. Back bit, in
1: the day, they were awesome.
0: Yeah, they were awesome. They had um they had a really good backing. Really, they were really good devices. So uh, three things. First thing, adware is horrible. This was um, a shot at an advertise an advertiser paying Lenovo, saying we need ads to be delivered in the browser, no matter what doesn't matter if they're going to an HTTPS-enabled site or not. We need to inject our adware into that so that they get the ads. That was Superfish's main goal. The thing is, typically the things that break HTTPS connections and completely circumvent the security, especially at the operating system layer um, and the session layer, that's a bad idea all the way around. Because now I have no security... um, you know, at that operating system layer, I can sit there as an attacker and pull out and proxy all that information and man in the middle. Second thing, this is actually a good way, or not? I'm not going to say a good way. It is a method in the enterprise to break HTTPS connections, because as you know, in the enterprise environment, typically when you see an encrypted connection, you say, you know what? we don't have an appliance in place to to break that connection or whatever the case is, sorry, you know we just can't see it. Now, what if you push your build out to have this certificate installed in the browser by default? Now you can break the connection as the employer and take a look at what's happening and do inspection in the web traffic. I mean, this could be a way to do that, right? Right. So, if you're an employer, do not do this method Because as an attacker, all I have to do is find out what that root certificate is on one of your machines. I can mirror that or mimic that on the environment and now I can man in the middle of the whole thing. However, it is a method to pull that encrypted traffic that you can't see. Um, Third thing I want to cover. When you get a PC, Mac, whatever, the first thing you want to do is wipe that sucker and put your own OS on there. You never want to just go with it out of the box and say, you know what? Uh, um, with all this stuff that's installed on here, it's perfect. It's working great. No, that that is not that is not the way that that you should operate as any consumer. Now, because they don't have the operating system disc sold with the machines anymore, people think that oh, I can't I can't put a new uh, image on this. So they don't even say image. I don't have a disc to put a new operating system on here. There's- Wait,
1: I have the AOL discs. Is that what you're talking about, like AOL 7.0? Did you get the 8.0 yet? I
0: got the 8.5, son. So, you've got mail. The obligatory. You've got mail. So, I I don't know. Um, me, as a consumer, if I buy something, I'm going to wipe it, no matter what, before I start using it. Uh, shame on Lenovo users for not doing that. Um, but... You know, there's, there's nothing that we can do. So
1: like. because of that whole debacle, San Diego blogger Jessica Bennett, Bennett filed a f- lawsuit in federal court last week. Bennett? Bennett. Bennett. Charging he Lenovo and Superfish. He, he had his pinky out while he was saying that. <laughs> Bennett. Charging Lenovo and Superfish with violating state and federal wiretap laws, trespassing on personal property, and violating California's unfair competition law. In addition to this, a Pennsylvania law firm put out a press release on Friday that asked Lenovo customers to participate in a class-action lawsuit investigation regarding the presence of Superfish on their computers. So, of course, we know Lenovo found itself in hot water uh, for doing what they did, and after the news became widely known... Lenovo published instructions on how to remove the software and apologize. That's but funny, Superf-
2: Superfish and hot water.
1: <laughs> but Superfish maintained that news reports amounted to, quote, misinformation and that Superfish adware, quote, does not present a security risk, end quote, despite multiple researchers claiming the contrary. In Bennett's complaint, she alleges that shortly after she purchased her Lenovo Yoga 2 laptop, she noticed salacious ads on her client's website, even emailing the client to inform them that its site had been hacked. Later, Bennett saw the same ad on another website, and she became concerned that her own laptop had been infected with spyware. Uh, Quote, Defendant spyware causes computers to slow down, takes up bandwidth over an internet connection, uses up memory on a computer, causes the loss of data, compromises computer security features, and frustrates computer users. End quote. The complaint alleges. Bennett invokes a California statute that prohibits using any means to, quote, purposefully intercept the content of a communication over any telegraph or telephone wire, line, cable or instrument, or to read or attempt to read or learn the content of any such communications without the consent of all parties to the communication, end quote, as well as federal laws against wiretapping she asks the court to let Lenovo users file a class complaint. Pennsylvania law firm Rosen Law is treading similar ground asking users of affected Lenovo computers to contact the firm if they're willing to potentially participate in a class action lawsuit. Quote, the adware exposes the computer user to serious security vulnerabilities that could result in a the theft of users login and passwords and other sensitive data that a user transmits online as well as a degraded internet experience caused by it downloading and injecting third-party ads and pop-up windows, end quote, the lawyers wrote in their announcement. ARS co- contacted Lenovo for comment, and a spokesperson responded that the company does not comment on pending legal matters. Superfish did not immediately respond to ARS's request for comment. That Lenovo would have lawyers clamoring to sue it Certainly no surprise, given the gravity of the Superfish fallout. But it's unclear how successful these legal overtures will be. Class action lawsuits, as always, require a judge's approval to go forward. Wow. So, this is going to be ongoing, and we're going to hear more from the Superfish. You know, I'm wondering, if there, is, is there a picture or a logo for Superfish? Yeah, I think there is. That'd be pretty uh, cool to see. I, this thing I have in my mind, you know, it's like the Superfish... <laughs> What's a, what's like one? like spreading it, uh, spreading its scales to show an S, you know. <laughs> oh, you mean something like this? Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. He or showed this. me a, a picture of a, a puffer fish dressed in a Superman or this one. <laughs> costume. Mercy. That one looks like it's
0: saying that. All right, uh, so Vic, do you have anything to?
2: on this one? Oh no
0: you want to spit a beatbox
2: nope <laughs> no, no be- comment
0: beatbox break no i just
2: want not be buying a lenova
0: yeah absolutely so next story um the so in the next story um accused british hacker wanted for you crimes in the u.s will not give up his crypto keys so, won't give up um, his, his keys to to the drive, I guess. So, an alleged British hacker who has criminal charges pending in three American federal districts is preparing to petition a Suffolk uh, United Kingdom court to compel the National Crimes Agency, NCA, to return his encrypted, seized computers and storage devices. So, the BBC reported Friday that Lori Love will petition... Barry St. Edmund's magistrates for the return of his property, adding that the BBC understands that the NCA has been unable to decrypt some of the files and does not want to return the computers and and, uh, media devices until Mr. Love um, helps to decrypt them. Love, who was arrested in the UK in October 2013 and was released on bail in July 2014, Did not immediately respond to Ars Technica's request for comment. The NCA is the rough uh, British equivalent of the FBI. So uh, an update from Ars Technica is Love contacted Ars and uh, said that his petition was submitted to the court earlier this month. And that he will make an appearance before the court on March 12, 2015. He is representing himself in the case. So he says, I cannot speak to the contents. He told Ars Technica except that they are mine. This is the only salient detail as far as I'm concerned. I am not on trial, nor is my data, and I am under no obligation to speak for it, but my property is being withheld from me, and that must be justified. The current justification is due to the inability of the NCA to understand certain data. It remains for them to establish why this is my problem, and for the court to decide if this gives them the authority to convert chattel. So, an NCA spokeswoman told Ars Technica, we are not aware of the court date and declined to comment on whether the NCA was able to decrypt Love's uh, seized files. According to the BBC, uh, Love said, should police, having obtained a reason to acquire information but lacking any overt evidence of criminality sufficient to bring prosecution, be allowed to withhold private data, there is a very dire risk that this power will be used to disrupt protected journalistic and political activity, he added. The United States could, but apparently has not yet, formally request that Love be extradited. If that occurs, and even if the UK authorities are able to access Love's data, it could take years for his extradition to be ever fully executed. Another British hacker, Gary McKinnon, was... Uh, who was accused of hacking American government facilities in 2001 and 2002, was charged with crimes in the U.S., eventually had his extradition blocked by the U.K. government in 2012. The Department of Justice did not immediately respond to Ars Technica's Friday afternoon request as to whether it had begun the extradition process. Update on last Saturday. Peter Carr, a Department of Justice uh, spokesman, told Ars Technica by email, as a matter of policy, we do not comment on extradition related matters. So, a targeted attack. As Ars Technica reported previously, Love and other alleged hackers are said to have breached networks belonging to Army, the U.S. Missile Defense Agency, NASA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and others, in most cases by exploiting vulnerabilities in SQL and Cold Fusion. Um, the objective of the year long hacking spree was to disrupt. The operations and infrastructure of the U.S. government by stealing large amounts of military data and personally identifying information of government employees and military personnel, according to a 21-page indictment uh, filed in a federal court on New- in New Jersey. So, just to clarify again, I have to, I have to say these things um, when we're covering these, these types of topics. We don't generate any of this data. This is something we read from Ars Technica. We are reporting the news. So um, we will post it up on the show notes so you guys can look at it, reference it, check it out. Um, but I just wanted to throw that that little tidbit in there. So um, you have no idea how much we can mess with the U.S. government if we wanted to. Love told a hacking colleague in one exchange over an Internet relay chat and IRC, prosecutors alleged uh, He says this. Stuff is really sensitive. It's basically every piece of information you need to fully identify theft on any employee or contractor for the hacked agency. Um, According to prosecutors, Love used automated scanners to identify vulnerabilities in large ranges of IPs. He would then exploit them to inject powerful SQL commands into a site's backend database. He exploited similar types of vulnerabilities in sites that use ColdFusion, um, the web application software, whose full source code was recently found on a server operated by hackers. So the cold fusion security flaw, which has since been corrected, allowed Love to gain um, administrator level access to computer servers without proper login credentials. A separate criminal complaint filed in Virginia federal court alleged. So after breaching their websites, Love allegedly planted backdoor code on the servers that gave him persistent access to the network so he could uh, return at a later date and steal confidential data. So. In New York, Love was charged with hacking and identity theft in relation to this hack against the Federal Reserve. So, very interesting um, stuff. You know, I, I don't know what to say about this. This is, you know, hackers versus governments, whether it be UK or US. And this is, you know, the, the government kind of, um, you know, in, in our, our judicial system kind of uh, doing its thing against that, but you know, for me, I live a very simple life, right? This this is like something out of the movies. You know what I mean? Um, but it's not like Black Hat the movie. If anybody saw it, you know that's two hours of your life that you're probably never going to get when well, you're not going to get back. Uh, don't waste your time. But either way, you know, um, this is something that just is very exotic to me to read this story and see all this stuff going down. But at the same time, you know, it does it does kind of raise raise the question. So, cool. Um, let's see. The cybersecurity expert, Ashik Jha, um analyzed the principal characteristics of APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, and AVT, Advanced Volatile Threat. So cyber criminals and their techniques in the APT and AVT attacks. So APT is an attack in the persistent memory that resides on the victim machine without getting noticed and the attacker exfiltrating sensitive information off of the network. AVT is an attack in volatile memory that wipes its fingerprints before leaving and after it has stolen your intellectual property. So APT... Advanced persistent threats are designed to gain access to a network, acquire data, and secretly monitor the targeted computer systems over long periods of time. Many researchers agree that the term advanced persistent threat was first coined in the U.S. government um, or by the U.S. government during 2005 by security analysts to describe complex cyber attacks against specified uh, targets for financial or informational gains, as well as uh, by a well-funded group of individuals. The advanced process signifies the sophisticated techniques using malware and known vulnerabilities to exploit the internal systems. The persistent process suggests that an external command and control system is continuously monitoring and extracting data from a specific target, and the threat process indicates the human involvement in orchestrating the attack. So the Stuxnet computer worm, which targeted the computer hardware of Iran's nuclear program is one example. In this case, the Iranian government might consider the Stuxnet creators to be an APT, or an Advanced Persistent Threat. So, Advanced Volatile Threat. AVTs are stealthier attack vectors when compared to the APTs. Many experts predict that the AVTs may cause or um, cause a huge damage by a sophisticated nation-state for cyber-espionage. The security vendor Triumphant, President and CEO John Prisco, says that It is an attack in volatile memory that wipes its fingerprints before leaving and after it has stolen your intellectual property. An AVT comes in, exfills the data it's looking for, and then immediately wipes its hands clean, leaving no trace behind as the computer is shut down. Um, Kevin McLevy, which is a co-founder and chief architect of the the KNOS project, called AVT a redefinition of the well-known term and memory resident virus. Um, and he says, the first memory resident virus was known as Lehigh, which made the rounds in 1987. He said, McLevy agreed that malware that is not persistent is tricky to spot. So um, traditional antivirus solutions depend on the presence of a file existing. And that's why uh, that's what they detect and look for attempting to intervene in the comp- completion of that file being loaded into memory and run as a program. He says, no file, so there's no detection. So how different is APT and AVT? APTs are persistent or disk resident, and AVTs are volatile or RAM only. Although uh, though AVT has not emerged as a new cyber threat, they have been present in the form of malware for a long time. They can be developed through a drive-by-download and exist only in RAM memory. In this sense, they are real-time attacks. AVTs are not persistent in that they disappear without a trace as soon as the PC is turned off or as soon as they stop running, whichever occurs first. On the other hand, um, APT attacks persistent memory for very long periods until the attacker steals all the required information off of the network. And AVTs are almost the exact opposite of APTs, which are designed to be low and slow and persist in the network for a very long duration. But AVTs are limited to part of one day um, in most cases. So breaking down the APT. The attacker group can include um, agencies, criminal groups, activist groups, and armed forces. They initiate an APT attack and wait patiently searching for security weaknesses and loopholes within the infrastructure of the target organization. Rather than impairing the system, the attacker hides within it and simply engages in stealth data collections. The life cycle of APTs can be classified into information gathering, initial exploitation, command and control, privilege escalation, and data exfil. The attackers perform research on threat entry points, key individuals and their responsibilities, key assets, and clients of the targeted organization through easily available public data on social networks. We'll, um, post the graphic from this report um, that, you know, was was uh, on security affairs on the website so you guys can see it. So um, complex, APTs apply a complex mix of attack methods targeting multiple vulnerabilities identified within the organization and may involve identifying key individuals of the target organization and apply multiple techniques listed below, so you have social engineering attacks, internet malware, physical malware, and external um, exploitations. Next, uh, slow infect. Essentially, APTs try to stay invisible for as long as possible to avoid any detection by following the rule of low and slow. Once a foothold is established in the target environment, the attacker remotely controls infected hosts with a CNC service, which is seamlessly installed into the victim's system, replacing a legitimate application software with a compromised component that includes additional functionality for the CNC requirement. Systems replacing a legitimate application with a compromised component—you um, know—they're—they're there they're, uh, on on the system itself. So, discover, control, and persist. The APT now starts to gather information about computer servers um, or storage holding the information that they have been instructed to steal. They perform this by using the tools available in the compromised systems. Their next step would be. Uh, would definitely involve lateral movement to new systems to explore their content and recursively learn about gaining access on other systems and uh, you know that's kind of the end of that that section so once the attacker moves around on the network using the compromised credentials of the first few targeted machines they then try to get privilege escalation from a local user to administrator in the system the tools used to gain more uh, control typically are gsec dump ssh rdp can enable which to crack passwords Key targets may include uh, administrators on the systems, right? So you, you want to take a look at that. And that would be AD, so Active Directory, and Certificate PKI Servers um, to establish accounts and gain privileges to confidential data within the network. Extract and take action. After discovering the data of interest, APTs uh, gather or generally gather the data into uh, an archive and then compress and encrypt the archive. This enables them to hide the contents of the archive from deep packet inspection and DLP techniques. The next step involved at the data from the victim systems, and typically APTs take the advantage of FTP services which are left running or use custom data transfer techniques as FTP is disabled. What makes APT attacks different from any other cyber attack is the scope, as they exploit vulnerabilities not to disrupt or shut down systems, but just to collect um, sensitive data. So, um... The APT then persists on the network to get uh, unnoticed. It is also designed to persist by calling back to the CNC server for updates to download new undetected code and to avoid detection by updated antivirus solutions. So the new uh, target data continues to become available, new customer records or updated business plans, uh, and holds value for the attacker. The extraction phase continues for a longer duration. Eventually, the attack will stop either because the attacker has achieved their goal or because the victim notices and cuts off the attack. Once the APT steals the data, then they perform several criminal activities like selling the data, threatening to publicly disclose the data, ask the victims to pay ransom. Uh, most popular APT methods are botnet or malwares like Rain, Flame, Dooku, and uh, the popular Suxnet, but these cyber attacks bypass the traditional signature-based tools and common sandboxes. On the other hand, ABT is one of the techniques malware used to avoid analysis. Most experts believe that the ABTs are having far greater likelihood of remaining undetected, thus protecting the identity of the attacker. Most commonly, a interpreter um, is used to launch an ABT. It's a simple-to-use exploitation tool included as part of Metasploit. It allows developers to write their own DLL file that can be injected into a running process on the targeted computer. As Conventional AV scanning uh, methods will not identify AVTs. RAM monitoring techniques will be required to detect an AVT in real time. So, in real time means that's it for our time. Um, it's been great, you know, uh, talking with you guys and and kind of covering these stories. We're gonna take a brief break, come back and finish the show. All right, and guys, we're back. and we're back. So, um, shout outs to our Twitter followers. And, uh, you know, thanks so much for um, following us on Twitter and our social media. Um, again, we want to apologize for not being very active over the past month or so, but
2: we're catching up. We have two episodes, 13 and 14, that we just put out this week. And Make sure
1: you check us out on YouTube as well. Check us out on the
2: YouTube. You know we're getting popular, man. We're also getting some stalkers out there, too. So shout out to our stalkers.
0: Yeah. You know, I take that as uh, their fans. <laughs> yeah, they're all fans. They're fans too, right?
2: <laughs> so uh
0: cool. With that, um I think I think we are done. So I think we're done, man. Cool. Alright, oh, also shout out to Chandra. Um, we shouted you out last time. Wanna shout you out again. Much love. Uh, so until next time, we'll see you then.